Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we are finally back. We've had some issues over the last year after we recorded the last of our Carrie Patterson episodes. And I would love to blame it all on the pandemic. And I really I can't blame it all on that. Although work for me got really busy. And then my computer crashed, which is still sitting on the garage floor with all of our old episodes on it. Mm-hmm. And Haley started school. Mm-hmm. Haley met a boy. Are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> I don't know that anyone cares. I don't know that anyone cares, but he does he still listen? Does he listen? I think randomly. I don't know. Hi, Corey. Are you listening? So basically what had originally started as just like the holiday season off, because our last episode is with Carrie Patterson in December. So like we always do, we take off like the December holidays through the first of the year and we were going to come back. Oh, and we moved in January. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, the pandemic started. So it was basically, so it wasn't one thing that kept us away for as long as the seven months that we've been away, but it it was a conglomerate of reasons, would you say? Yeah. That we had trouble getting back. And we're still struggling, like even now. Yeah. Our plan was to have, what, like 10 episodes ahead? Yeah, we were like, oh, this break will be nice. We'll get ahead. And then nothing. We yeah. have nothing. What do we have and right now? Nothing. How many episodes do we have right now? One, kind of, in this one. <laughs> so we did not do what our plan, our original plan was. And this episode is not technically, I wouldn't call this a full episode. I would call this a preliminary episode to what we talk about in, ne- in the next week's episode. Yeah. Because we did something weird. We recorded yesterday. And then realized after we were done, and it was a, we were talking for a good two two hours at yeah. least, right? That Bob Taft and I, and you'll remember Bob Taft from the Carrie Patterson episodes. He is the Orange County the investigator for the Orange County Sheriff's Department Homicide Bureau. He yesterday when we sat down to talk and record the episode, we realized that he and I had been talking about this case for a year and a half now since the very beginning of the pandemic. And so when we sat down to talk about it yesterday, he and I are so familiar with all the different aspects of the case that we probably didn't clarify the basics of the case. Is that, is that how you felt, Haley? Yeah, just like the sequence of events in the storyline is probably a little... Lost, because yeah. he and I are talking like we've been talking about it for a year, and we didn't, we didn't set the foundation for the story is, I think, what we didn't do. Yeah. So what we're going to do today is we're going to give you the foundation of the case that we covered, and then next week we'll be back with the beginning part. It's going to be several episodes, right, of the conversation with Bob Taft where we delve into every aspect of the case. That's how I... The details. That's how I see it. But before we do that, I wanted to tell you what to expect coming up from us in the next couple months and into 2022. If you follow us on um, social media, you probably saw me post all the the huge list of all the shows that I want to do or the episodes that I want to do. And if you don't follow us on social media, we really need you to, right, Haley? Like, what's our... Tell them how to find us on each of our social media. Instagram is Haunting History. 
Facebook, we have Haunting History Podcast. There's a group, and then there's a private group. There's, no, there's a group and a page. Okay. One's private, though, right? One you have to request again. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then Twitter. Is Haunting H Pod. And then we still have our Patreon. We will get better out posting on it. We used to do giveaways and everything on it, so now we're back, back. We will we'll do doing. that all over again. Well, going back to that, if you were... If you are not following us on any of the social medias, please follow us. Particularly, I think that we're most active on Instagram. Please go and follow us on Instagram so that you know what's going on. And the episodes that we have coming up with some really exciting, like if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we typically in October switch over from true crime and cold cases and unsolved and talk about more paranormal locations that have a history to them. And this year is no different, except that we are super excited. And our haunting history episodes, the ones that are the paranormally based, um, will run all the way into November because we have so many of them this year. The One of the ones we're going to do, we're going to be talking to Sammy Washburn and Abby Smith from St. Augustine's Lighthouse. Where is that at? In Florida. And that's haunted because why? Well, one of the stories out of the St. Augustine's Lighthouse is one of the tower keepers, one of the lighthouse keepers mm-hmm. in the 1800s, his daughters were tragically killed in an accident, little girls, and people say they see them and hear them. And that's, I mean, it's kind of, it's such a beautiful lighthouse too. So I'm super excited about that one. And I'm excited that they, rather than me just tell the story, that they're going to do it with me. They yeah. are there every day. And we have Charles Spratley from Villa Montezuma in San Diego. Do you remember Villa Montezuma? No, but I think we've tried to do that one a couple times, right? We've tried. I've reached out to them, and the the they've changed it to Villa Montezuma Museum, and it was a personal home in the 1800s, and it has a ton of history, and the person that built it and lived in it, well, he lived in it for a short time, was a very eccentric character, and it's such a beautiful, interesting house in Sherman Heights, San Diego, and they had to... The foundation wasn't good, so they had to raise money to redo the floors and stuff. So they're just starting to reopen now. Mm-hmm. So the last couple of years I've reached out to them, they really weren't doing anything other than working on the house. So this year, Charles has written stories about Villa Montezuma, and he actually wrote a book, which we'll include in his episode. Um, but he's going to do that story with us. And then I'm beyond, like beside myself, excited. He also does a tour of historic Orange Plaza, in Orange County, California, which is my hometown where I grew up, literally blocks from the Orange Circle or the Orange Plaza, whichever you want to call it. There's always an argument about what it's called, but it was one of the one of the first little communities that a cosmopolitan towns that were built in Orange County, California, before it was Orange County, California. Yeah. And he's going to talk about all the different buildings and locations there, and I'm so excited about that. I know so much of the history from there, but to have him tell it, because he does like the ghost tours and the ghost walks down there, is just going to add to it. So I'm super excited about that. No words for the fact that we are doing some episodes on the Madison Seminary. And we're doing those episodes with Brandon Alvis and Mustafa Gadalori. And I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm sure he'll correct me. From Ghost Hunters. If you're familiar with the TV show Ghost Hunters, those guys are going to do an episode with us about the Madison Seminary. And then... Brandon is going to do another episode with me about the Los Angeles Police Department Museum, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And he he and he's so nice. He's such a nice guy. He suggested he's like your podcast is true crime, and you have a paranormal edge. Why not do the L.A. Police Museum? He said it's they have all this stuff from all the crimes, 
Like, they have a dress that Sharon Tate was wearing the night she was murdered by Charles Manson. Yeah. They have um, the last article of clothing that Marilyn Monroe was wearing. I can't even remember. They have... He was going through the list of stuff, and he's like, it just kind of fits you perfectly. I'm why shocked. have we never been there? I don't know why we haven't been there, and I don't know why we haven't done an episode on it. So that's coming up, and that people talk about that building being haunted. So that one's sort of a, we'll do that one in November probably because it's like a true crime and a paranormal cross. So I'm excited. We, we have so many of these episodes coming up, and that's just what I have on the books right now. So we'll have even more stories coming up in October, and again, we're going to run into November with all of these. And then next year, we're going to do a whole bunch of stories. There's um, a story about the most notorious UFO sighting ever. My favorite. Um, we're going to do that one. We're going to do <laughs> Urban Legends by State. I want to do a couple. There's been a lot of cases solved by genetic DNA, which we all know is the genealogy angle is is sort of my Your real jam. house. Yeah, it's my jam. So we're going to talk about some cases solved by genetic DNA, we're also going to do, I'm trying really hard, and um, this would be one of our paranormal shows, but I'm trying really hard to get in touch with someone at Waverly Sanitarium. I'm hoping, I kind of have an idea of a really cool guest for that, and I don't, he hasn't responded to me yet, so we'll see. I have some contacts, we'll work on it. We're going to do the um, Hotel Monta Vista in Flagstaff, Arizona. We're going to talk about the disappearance of the Jameson family, Tara Calico, the mystery of the Greystone Mansion. St. Elizabeth Hospital. I, I want to do an episode on the death of Edgar Allan Poe. I didn't even realize that there was a lot of sort of conspiracy theories about Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm super excited to do that. Murder at the Mall. It's the Michelle Martinko case, which I found incredibly interesting the way that they ended up solving that. So it's a solved case. And then a whole bunch. I have so many that I want to do. Uh, we're working on an episode of the museum heist, the most famous museum heist ever. So we have a ton of stuff coming up in 2022. Uh, the next couple episodes, like I talked about, is going to be about the Dorothy Jane Scott case. And again, what we're going to do for you today is give you sort of the basics of the case. We're not going to dive into the story today because that's what happens over the next couple episodes. But I wanted to give the really basics of Dorothy Jane Scott. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Dorothy Jane Scott was 32 years old. She was a secretary. And she worked at two stores, a store called Swinger Psych Shop and Custom John's. And again, we'll get more into that in the next episode. But she, one of the significant things about Dorothy is that she worked behind the scenes. She didn't work in the store. She worked in the back room. So it's significant because of what transpires during the course of her disappearance and her murder. But people described Dorothy. She was 32 years old, a single mom, lived in Stanton, with her aunt and her young son. Her son was only four years old in 1980. And she relied a lot on her parents. Her parents took care of Sean whenever she had to work. And back on in May of 1980, she was at a work meeting at night. And she had dropped her son off with her parents to go to this work meeting. During the course of the work meeting, she had noticed that one of her co-workers, Conrad Boston is his name looked ill, like he wasn't feeling well. And there's contention about what transpired during the meeting, but it was finally determined that Dorothy would take Conrad to the emergency room. Another coworker, her name is Pam Head, offered to go to the emergency room with them. So on that night in May, they went to UCI Medical Center. When they got to the hospital, Conrad was called to the back to be treated. And Pam, to this day, 41 years later, insists that 
Her and Dorothy stayed together the entire time that Conrad was being treated. When Conrad came out of the emergent, uh, came out of the back when he after being treated, he had a prescription to fill. Dorothy suggested that Pam and Conrad go get the prescription filled because Conrad clearly didn't feel good. He had a really bad infection. They would go get the prescription filled. Dorothy would go to the parking lot, which was literally within eyesight, basically not directly in front of the emergency room, but to the left of the emergency room was a large parking lot. Like if you lot. walked outside and looked left, you'd see the Make a, lot. You would see the parking lot. It was a large parking lot. Dorothy said, I'll go get the car so Conrad doesn't have to walk. You guys go get the prescriptions. There is contention about whether she went to the bathroom. They think she went to the bathroom. Like she said, I'll go get the car, but she went to go potty first. Makes sense. And then she went to get her car. A few minutes later, after they had gotten the prescription filled, which probably was maybe 20 minutes, it probably wasn't that fast. They got the prescription filled. They walked out front. They were waiting for Dorothy and no one was coming. They had expected her to be there. So they waited a few minutes and when they didn't notice her car driving up the driveway, they decided to walk to the parking lot and see where she was. Like maybe the car wouldn't start. And when they approached the parking lot, they saw what they thought was Dorothy's car driving very quickly towards them. Towards the exit. Because they had passed the exit walking to the parking lot. They tried to wave her down thinking, oh, she didn't see them. She was heading to the front of the hospital. And they would have to like turn around and run back to the hospital. They tried to flag her down, but the car kept going. And instead of pulling up to the front of the emergency room doors, it turned and went out the driveway and made a right on the city drive, which is a street that the hospital was on. They stood there for a few minutes trying to figure out, well, was that her car? Like it looked like her car. Maybe it wasn't her car. And they kind of stood there like confused, like, why would she drive right past us? So they decided they could see from where they were. And I, I know this hospital very well. They could have seen where they were that she did not pull up to the front of the hospital, that she turned and went out the driveway instead. So they went to the parking lot to see if her car was there. Like maybe it wasn't her car, but her car was gone. So like, so that was her car. They kind of assumed amongst the, the two of them. I mean, by now it's literally midnight, at least. They're staying at the hospital that maybe Dorothy had got notified somehow, which they I don't know what their thoughts were at that point, that something had happened to her son and that she was rushing to go get her son or something. like Some nothing. type of emergency. Some kind of emergency that would make her leave them there. And they thought, well, she's going to rush home and get her son or whatever, and she'll come back and get us. So they walked back to the hospital and basically sat there for, some people say three hours. I think they say about two hours. And thinking that she would come back for them. So after two hours, when she didn't come back, they notified the police at the hospital, which was the UCI campus police. The police suggested that they call her parents and find out did she if she went there. So that's what Pam did. Pam called Dorothy's parents, who were Jacob and Vera Scott, and asked if Dorothy had come home. They confirmed that she did not. So then the UCI police basically said, well, she's an adult, we can't file a missing persons report on her because she is 32 years old. She may have just decided, I, I don't want to take you home. So they had to wait in the hospital. And I found out during the episode yesterday, I actually didn't know this, that their boss basically had come and picked them up at the hospital, John Kaikola. The next morning, about four and a half, five hours after this speeding car had left the hospital, Dorothy's car was found in an alley in the city of Santa Ana on fire. Pretty quickly, they determined whose car it was. And because UCI police had not done a missing persons or a bolo on Dorothy, the Santa Ana police contacted, tried to contact Dorothy to say, 
your car was found in an alley and contacted and contacted her father instead, who told the Santa Ana police that his daughter had gone missing four hours prior. Before this night, and this is one of the most important parts of this case, prior to this night in May that she had gone to this meeting and took her co-worker to the hospital and then disappeared, Dorothy was receiving calls from a stalker who would, and these calls were coming to her job at Custom John's and Swinger Psych Shop, and the phone calls would fluctuate between being, you're so beautiful, I love you, to I know what you're doing today, I love the outfit you're wearing, those shoes look really good on you. So he, she knew it was someone who could see her. But then the calls would be at other times extremely graphic in what he wanted to do to her. And it involved killing her and cutting her up in little pieces. So she was frightened enough of these phone calls prior to her going missing. She considered purchasing a gun. But she was worried because she had a four-year-old son at the time and she didn't want to have a gun in the house. And to be quite honest, oftentimes people describe, if you read any of the old articles, and there are a ton of newspaper articles on Dorothy's case from the time that she went missing going forward, most people describe Dorothy as being a bookworm as being a bookworm or being really quiet or librarian-like. And she really wasn't. When I got to know her son through this whole thing, and quite frankly, he didn't know her either at four years old, but he had talked to everybody who had known his mom through the years. And she was a pretty, she was pretty typical for the 70s. I mean, by 32, she had calmed down a little bit, but in, and she had her son, obviously. So she was a mother first, but she was a hippie. She did hippie stuff and she was friendly and people loved her and described her as beautiful and things like that. But a lot of people describe her as being quiet or sedate or librarian-like. And I don't think she really was. And we'll talk about that again. We'll talk about that more in the next episode. But she was she was a mom first. So when she first started getting the phone calls, she was frightened. She was frightened enough to think consider getting a gun. And she didn't think that would be safe for her son. So she ended up taking karate classes in self-defense. And she didn't tell a lot of people about the phone call she was getting. Her mom knew about it, especially when they turned ugly and threatening. Her mom knew about the calls, but she didn't broadcast it a lot and she didn't know who it was. She always said it sounded familiar, but not someone that she could pinpoint. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people need to understand about back then when you were using landlines. Landlines could make your voice sound different. Like the way that you sounded on your landline phone isn't necessarily how you sounded in person. Does that make sense? I Sure. I wouldn't really know. I don't think so. I mean, like, I don't think that, I think that it wasn't incredibly different, but I think landlines definitely back in the 80s were not, there was, they're not clear like they are now, I guess is what I'm saying. But either way, she didn't recognize the caller and, but she was frightened. She was frightened for her own life. And then she went missing. And then after she went missing, and this is really just a timeline of what happened. After she went missing, the phone calls that Dorothy was getting transferred to phone calls to her mom. She went missing in 1980 and in May of 1980. And then for the next four years, her mom got the same phone calls. But about Dorothy. About Dorothy. Like, is Dorothy there? And her mom would say, no. Well, that's because I have her. Or um, just call and when her mom answered, say, I've killed her. Or she's not coming home. Things like that. For four years, she got on and off, not consistently, but on and off for the next four years. In August of 1984, a construction worker found Dorothy's remains on a site off of Santa Ana Canyon Road in Anaheim. Her, They were not all of her remains. There were several bones and a skull. And the skull was enough. Um, It had all of the molar teeth in it. And that was enough 
to identify Dorothy as Dorothy. It took about two weeks for Dorothy's remains to be identified and her parents to be notified that Dorothy's body had been found. Now, one of the contingencies is that they never found all of Dorothy's bones and they've never been able to determine the cause of death and they've never been able to determine when she died. Because in 1982, prior to her bones being found and after her disappearance, a fire had ravaged the area where her remains were found and basically destroyed any evidence of of what happened to Dorothy. So for the next probably 10 years, Dorothy's case was extremely active but the general consensus is is they never had one suspect for her murder they in in we will again talk about this more next week they had people of interest like people that were in her life and i know i mentioned in next week's episode that dorothy didn't have a boyfriend at the time that she went missing she did not have a boyfriend her son's father sean's father lived in minnesota i believe it was minnesota and Jacob, in one of the newspaper articles, Jacob Scott, her dad, states that when Dorothy went missing that night, he called his daughter's ex-boyfriend, he was her ex by then, in Minnesota, and he answered the phone. So he was never really a, for sure, like a suspect. Like, I'm sure the police talked to him and stuff. But in Jacob's mind, there's no way that he could have been here in California and there within hours of each other. So he's never been really a suspect. There was a person of interest that we will speak of a lot more in next week's episode, but he was never a suspect either. So for the last 41 years, there is not one particular suspect in the murder, in the kidnapping and murder of of Dorothy Jane Scott. There's a lot of people of interest. I don't know that I would say even a lot of people. She led a pretty clear life. She went to work. She went home. Yeah. She didn't... It's not like it was convoluted where she would go out and party and meet these people and these people and these people. She was pretty, by the age of 32 when she disappeared, she was a mom by then. And that was her life. Work and her son were her life. So I guess that, I don't know what you call it, but the scope of like suspects was not very long. They, they knew it was someone, and, and, and this is the general consensus, I think, by most of the people who have done episodes. And if you've ever heard the story of Dorothy Jane Scott, there's so many podcasts have done stories on her. There's a ton of them and they all have their own theories. But the general consensus is, is that it was someone who knew her and had access to her because this person, this had the ability to see like, again, what she was wearing, knew what kind of car she drove, knew where she worked. This person wasn't a stranger to her. We don't, at least... Generally, people don't think so. They don't think it was a random abduction. I don't know if I'm sold on her knowing the person. Yeah. You think that it was someone from afar, maybe? It could have been. I think just someone of opportunity at the hospital. Oh, that far? So you don't associate with the the stalker before she went missing at all? Mm, I don't know. The thing I do have to say about the hospital, and I say this next week too, so it's going to be repetitive, it wasn't on a quiet street. I mean, it may have been midnight, but... the city drive, the street that it's on and Chapman that it's on, are main thoroughfares. They're not little side streets. And this wasn't like a podunk town. This is Orange County, California. There was a, it, there's very rarely a time where there's zero activity. So the fact, the thought of her being, um, it being random, I just, and, and, and the fact that she was being called before that. And then the calls continued for her mom. I think this was all very well thought out. Well thought out and 
I'm not going to ever deny that it wasn't an opportunity that night. Like at that moment that that became the opportunity. I'm not going to deny that. But we're going to have so much more on this story. But we wanted, especially for Haley, because Haley doesn't know the whole story. And yesterday when we were talking, we realized that we had not really covered the foundation of the story. And I think that we just did. This is basically the entire foundation of Dorothy Jane Scott. And then next week, our episode is going to include Bob, who tells me things that I didn't even know. And again, we've been talking for a year and a half about this case, and he's still getting information, and things are evolving in the case even 41 years later. And I think that's normal, but I think the more that we put things out into the public about cold cases, there's the opportunity for people from that time period, from 41 years ago, that knew Dorothy or worked at Custom John's may have suspected something that they didn't say back then that they could say now. And that's why we do these cold cases in the hopes that we we reach that person, that person that maybe was there and knows something and can say something now. So if so, we will be back next week with the episode, starting with the first episode with Bob, that we will go in depth on this case and all of the different aspects of the case. Because what I did today was more of an, an overview of the disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott. And next week we will get more into details about her case. So join us next week with investigator Bob Taft from the Orange County, California Sheriff's Department Homicide Bureau. If you know anything about the disappearance and or murder of Dorothy Jane Scott in May of 1980, please call the Orange County Sheriff's Department at 714-647-7055. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.